You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. It is such a joy for me to have my two guests, Mike Allen and Jim Vandehey, with me today. Jim had something come up, and so at the beginning, it's going to be just Mike, and then if Jim comes in, we will include him in the discussion. They are here to discuss their new book, Smart Brevity, uh, which hit bookstores last week and is an absolute fantastic read on how to indoctrinate smart brevity into your life at work, in your writing, in your communications with family, friends, and colleagues, and in your presentations, whether at the office, church, club, or a high school reunion. Quick bios of Mike and Jim, and we will then dive into their book, their careers, their success with Politico and Axios, and some fantastic actionable tips on how to better communicate in a digital world. Jim Vandehey is co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Axios, and co-founder and former CEO of Politico. He was a journalist for Roll Call, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He won the Ben Bradley Editor of the Year Award in 2015. Jim is from Wisconsin, which, if he joins us, will become evident during the discussion. Mike Allen is co-founder of Axios and previously co-founder of Politico, where he pioneered the morning newsletter Politico Playbook. Before that, he was a journalist at Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Richmond Times Dispatch. Mike Hales from Orange County, California, which will not be evident throughout most of this discussion. He is also a graduate of Washington Lee University, which I think last time I checked is the number one school with the most graduates at Walker and Dunlop. And so, uh, Mike, great to have another WNLer having some input on WND. I was going to start this interview, Mike, asking you what being born at Long Beach Memorial Hospital was like and how it influenced your career, but that might not lead to a smart brevity discussion. So let's start here. The genius behind Politico Axios and your book, Smart Brevity, from my standpoint, is your customer focus. Explain to us how traditional media, places like the Washington Post and the New York Times, are oriented versus the organizations you and Jim have founded and so successfully run. Willie, that's a great question. And Jim and I were the perpetrators of it. We were newspaper political reporters. We were the worst offenders. I'll come back to that in two seconds. But first, I wanted to say how happy I am that WNL represents there. And Willie, I wanted to pause to tell you how much Jim and I have been looking forward to this because your story, your focus on family and fitness is very inspiring. And uh, we've been interested in you and inspired by you. And so uh, now very excited about this. So thank you. Well, first of all, the you and my mom, both having been at Time Magazine, it was super fun and is a, a neat connection point. And I thought your email back to me of saying that my mom was a, a legend of sorts at Time Magazine was as about as nice a thing as I've ever heard my mother be called or someone comment on her, given her 20-year career at Time Magazine covering the White House as the White House photographer, which many people listening wouldn't have known if I hadn't just given that descriptor on it. But beyond that, the way that you and I connected was the Wall Street Journal article on fit CEOs and how in that in that article, they called me out for having an eight pack, not a six pack. And you ending up in your Axios morning brief commenting on that article, which I one of the questions I have for you, Mike, is how do you you do that every morning, 365 days a year? My understanding, you don't sleep a lot, which gives you a lot of time to read. But how do you pull together your Axios AM? Thank you, Willie and Diana Walker. Absolutely one of the greats. And the morning newsletter I do, Axios AM, was part of the genesis of our book, Smart Brevity. So as I was mentioning to you, Jim and I, our uh, third co-author and our co-founder of Axios, Roy Schwartz, we were, Roy worked for Gallup and so has always uh, made the world a better place. But Jim and I were paid basically to produce words that when you work at a newspaper, when you're an old school political reporter, that the longer your story, the better chance to get on the front page of the section, the 
longer the story, maybe it will be on the Sunday front page. If your story's even longer, you might be entered for a prize. And if it's super duper duper long, it might win a prize. And why is that? For so long, the incentives were all the wrong thing, that all the media out there was designed to help the journalist, help the publisher, make you keep time on site at an exact time that no one has time. And so when Roy Schwartz, Jim Vandehei, and I started Axios five, six years ago, we decided to flip that. And the first two words of the Axios manifesto are audience first. And that is, think first about the person who's going to be consuming your speech or your Zoom that you're leading or a memo or an email. Well, I love the point, that the, love the fact that you mentioned at the top, class reunions, because the magic of smart brevity is so applicable to anyone who's listening, whether they are a student, whether they are an intern, whether they're the day one employee, whether they're an aspiring leader, or whether they're a mogul like yourself, smart brevity can help you communicate more efficiently, crisply, and be heard through this crazy fog of words that comes at all of us. So I want to back up for a moment, Mike, to political playbook, because I think political playbook starts you down this path towards smart brevity. But you came up with political playbook where you would put together a morning briefing, basically. And in 2010, the New York Times Magazine had a cover article on you. And the headline was the man the White House wakes up to. Talk for a moment about playbook how that was launched, and then we'll take that into why you couldn't just take Politico and turn it into Axios, the creation of Axios, and then Smart Brevity. Thank you, Willie. And a part of the genesis of Playbook is something that will serve your listeners, and that is that the email that I wrote at Politico for, you're right, 10 years, sad as it is, I've written a morning newsletter every morning, 365 days a year for 15, 16 years now. And that gives gives you a great perspective on what people want, what people will consume. And Politico Playbook, my first newsletter, was based on something that your listeners will find very resonant and applicable. And that is that I thought of it as a human conversation with the people that who read my newsletter. And that is a very actionable tip for all of your listeners on how to communicate in smart brevity. And that is to imagine that you're a human talking to a human. Imagine that. Because really, here's the reality. When you and I are sitting together, having a cup of coffee, having a cup of Irish coffee, there are social cues that keep me from being boring. We're having breakfast before at happy hour. I'm not going to use SAT words, what my grandma powers called $10 words. I'm not going to use, so I'm not going to use fancy words, phrases. The other day, one of our reporters wrote aforementioned. I'm like, aforementioned, you would never say that in a bar. I don't repeat myself when I'm talking to you person to person. I don't tell you things that you already know, like, because I want you to like me and I want you to have me back to breakfast again. But then, Willie, think about it. All of us, journalists especially, all of us, when we get behind a keyboard, we do all of those things. And so the very actionable tip that I learned from Politico Playbook was don't Think of yourself as like a journalist typing a newsletter. Think of yourself as a human who is trying to connect with another human. And this could be a newsletter for your school. This could be an update for your team. This could be uh, something for a nonprofit. However you're trying to communicate, think of the other person as you're talking to them. And our hack for this, Willie, is read it out loud. Whatever comes out of your laptop, whatever comes out of your office, whatever you're trying to get someone to engage with, read it out loud. And that is a magical process because you right away realize if you're using those $10 words, you right away realize if what you're saying is kind of muddled and and mushy because a reality is that if you don't know what you're trying to say, the audience has no hope of doing it. And the last thing really is you realize if you're too long, if you're boring yourself when you're reading out out loud, imagine what you're doing to the person who's on the other end. So one of the stats, Mike, that came out of some of my reading on how you ended up creating Axios was that 
you and Jim looked at page views on the articles that you all were writing in Politico and seeing that 80% of the people didn't make it past page one. So that's kind of the first glaring thing of, hey, I've gone and written 1,200 words, and we're seeing that 80% of the people don't even get beyond page one. Then you created Politico Pro, which was, to those who don't know, kind of a deep dive from an industry standpoint. So if you were in the healthcare industry, you could subscribe to Politico Pro, and Politico Pro inside of healthcare gave you a really deep dive on that. And what the data came back on that was that you had behind that summary the ability to go even deeper, and only 5% of the people went deeper for more information, even when you were segmented into their industry, which I also found amazing. So one of the big things about Politico was that you started to really analyze the data on what people really wanted to find, correct? You nailed it, uh, Willie. Those were the light bulb moments, because what we recognized was that all these beautiful words that we were so proud of and spent so much time on that no one was reading them, not even my mom. That when you looked it, dug into that data that you're talking about, people weren't reading the long stories. And the light bulb moment, Willie, was, and I think that your listeners will relate to this. If you think about a podcast, if you think about an industry meeting, a Zoom, a sermon, any piece of content that you consume, if you think about it, Willie, if you have one takeaway, if there's one memorable thing in any one of those experiences, that's a win, right? And so the flip side of that is if you're the person communicating, if you're writing an email, if you're writing a letter, if you are writing an update or a report uh, for your boss or for your team, the reality is that they will cons- they will remember one thing, that at best, one thing will come across from your piece of content. And so what Smart Brevity does and what the Smart Brevity book will help your listeners do is lean into that and recognize that there is one thing. And so the key to Smart Brevity is figuring out what that one thing is, honing it, have a conversation, talk to the person next to you, talk to your significant other about it so that you know that it's clear. And this is the trade secret. This is the spoiler. Then just put it at the top of your letter or your memo or your email. Don't waste time by saying, I hope things are going well despite these crazy times, right? That does nothing for your listener. And another piece of data that was illuminating on this is you go to some of the greatest news organizations in the world, the places that we all depend on for great uh, foreign coverage, science coverage, other types of coverage. 20 seconds, 20 seconds is the amount of time that the average person engages with the average piece of content. So if you don't grab me at the top, you've lost me. So you'd identified these trends, if you will, from what the consumer wanted while you all were at Politico, and yet you decided to jump out and start Axios. Why couldn't you just take Politico and make it Axios? So Politico is awesome what they do. They cover politics, and we're very proud of them. The big idea behind Axios was to do a completely redesigned, completely new experience for the news consumer. And big organization like that, it was 500 people. When we left, it was many more than that now. Like, that's not going to change overnight. But overnight, we wanted to create an experience designed all about the reader, the viewer, the listener. And so we designed a totally new format that became Smart Brevity. And the architecture, the tips and tricks, the how-to are all in the book Smart Brevity that we said, every story is going to start as one iPhone screen. Then we're going to give you the power to go deeper, but we're going to start with an efficient, cleanly reading experience. And for 99% of content, like an efficient experience is the best one. And a great example of this that we have in the book is I talked to Mark Smith, a middle school teacher who is in Falls Church, Virginia, very close to where I am. I live in Arlington, Virginia. Axios headquarters is in Arlington, Virginia. That's where I am at the moment is at Axios HQ. And I talked to Mark Smith, and when he would send emails home to parents, he discovered that they either skipped his key points or couldn't remember his key points or weren't sure what the key points were because they kept asking him things that he'd already answered in his email. He gets my morning newsletter, Axios AM, 
and he saw that I put the key points in bold. And Willie, he tried that, and it was magical that hmm. all of a sudden there was much better take up among his parents in what he was trying to say in his email. And here's the magic, and here's the takeaway for your listeners is it wasn't so much that the key points were in bold, it was that he was thinking about them and he singled out what those key points were. And then once he knew what they were, it was easier for him to emphasize them and put them up top. And so that's leaning into this idea that people are gonna remember one thing. So don't give them eight, don't let them pick. Make your point, make it clearly, start by the top, grab me, have a clever tease, have a way to get my attention, tell me what's new, tell me why it matters, maybe back it up with an example, some statistics. And if you want to give the person the power to go deeper, uh, link to uh, one of the great reports like your colleague uh, do, or link to some original source material. But that architecture is a very powerful way to communicate one-to-many, whether you are a person who is communicating up or communicating down, communicating in, communicating out. So Axios was founded on sort of a premise of short, smart, simple, and direct. Sounds really easy, very difficult in practice. As you quote in your book, Mark Twain saying, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. How do you take your writers, your incredible researchers, and get them to basically write the way that you have both described in this discussion, as well as the way you do the morning briefing, the Axios AM every day. No, well, it's a great point. And we ask them to think about the audience. Think about the person on the other end. It was funny, uh, even the Pope uh, has talked about this. Uh, Pope Francis talked about how the nuns suffer from how long the homilies are and said that people should cut back on the homilies. Because think about it this way, a minister or priest, has something very, very important to say, right? But if we're asleep, it's not going to have its desired (laughs) effect. So we have a great story in our book, Smart Brevity, about a pastor in Alexandria, Virginia, David Glade. Jim Vandeheim, my co-author of this, you know, Axios was sitting in church, and David Glade was talking about some advice he gave his kids. And that advice, you can boil it down to five words. Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. How's that for smart brevity and a great way to live? But will he consider all the books he could have quoted or experts or all the things that he could have said? But instead, he said it in a memorable way. We're talking about it years later. And here's the secret is he spent time on the front end thinking about it. Like something as memorable as do the next right thing, five words. Like that doesn't come out the first time. That's the product of work and thinking. And so that's what we ask our journalists to do. And what I urge your listeners to do as part of communicating more powerfully themselves is to do the thinking on the front end, to figure out what you want to say, think of a sharp, memorable way to communicate it, and then just say it, spell it out a little bit, and then just stop. And uh, Willie, a way that you can boil this down is start by thinking, not typing. So on that, in the Axios headquarters, if you walked out of your your office where you are today doing this, on the wall in Axios is a saying that says, brevity is confidence, length is fear. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. It's written on an old reporter's notebook that goes back to the beginning of Axios. And the reason that that idea is so powerful, brevity is confidence length is fear, is that something that I think you'll agree with from your professional life is that an awful lot of people are faking it, right? Willie, would you buy the idea that even a lot of people at the top of the game are faking it? I mean, it was interesting. When you were on Squawk Box last week on Wednesday, just after you was the CEO of Patagonia being asked about Avant Chouinard donating all of the proceeds, the company to found well to a 501c4 that's going to basically give away all the money to try and protect the environment. And in that, he was asked directly, do you think that there are a lot of people who are trying to basically cheat on these ESG goals to be more than they are? And he said very directly, sure, there are plenty of corporations that say one thing and do something else. And we do need some standards on that. But yes, to your point, sure. 
And really one of the biggest ways that we fake it is with words. We just throw the words out because we think it's going to hide the fact that we either don't really know the material or don't really know the solution or don't have the solution. And that's why the long letter is easier to write because you haven't really thought about it. You haven't really done the work so that you understand the context, you understand the nuance. And that's part of the magic of smart brevity is it has to be both sides, both smart and brief. And the smart part is that if you've really thought it through and can communicate it clearly, can speak to me like another human being, you don't have to sacrifice context and nuance, that all of that can be baked in and so that you have actually a very sophisticated idea, but you're communicating it in a sharp, clear, memorable, digestible way. So this book, Smart Brevity, right here, which I would strongly suggest to anyone who's watching to go out and get this. Everyone on my senior team has read it, and lots of our clients are also going to get a copy of it after this webcast goes out. It's 28,002 words, Mike which is actually shorter than Jamie Dimon's annual letter that he publishes at J.P. Morgan. And I know that Axios and Axios HQ have worked with J.P. Morgan to take Jamie's 32,000 words and make it far more digestible, understandable. But I A, found it to be amazing that this was 28,002 words in your book, which was shorter than what Jamie writes every year, which obviously, like Warren Buffett's annual letter, is widely regarded as one of these you know, annual things that you must read to get your arms around what's happening in the world we live in. And so I'm not in any way trying to disparage Jamie's letter because I read it cover to cover. But at the same time, it's also interesting that JP Morgan understood that there's some learnings from what you've done on smart brevity that they could adopt to take Jamie's letter and communicate it to their client base in a little bit more digestible form. Yeah, well, that's right. A fun fact about those 28,002 words, our publisher, Workman, who's been a great uh, partner in this, they told us that that was the exact minimum that could minimum number of words that would uh, create a book that you could put between hardcovers and that you could buy on Amazon or buy on smartbrevity.com or buy uh, from a great independent uh, bookseller. So that's why we have one of the shortest books in the history of books. On Jamie Dimon, there's a, we have a fun chapter in here. We call it Shining Diamond, D-I-M-O-N. And it talks about how we boiled down at J.P. Morgan's request. A lot of people, some people wanted the full the full blast Jamie, right? The full 32,000 words. But to try to get it read beyond Wall Street and people like yourself are going to read the, the whole thing. But if you get beyond the financial industry and beyond real estate, you're going to want shorter version. You're going to reach more people. And so we took Jamie's vision for the future, as it says, and put it in a smart brevity format, put it in that, that core four that we talked about where you start with a tease that's going to get my attention. You're going to tell me what's new. You're going to tell me why it matters. You're going to give me the power to go deeper. Like that smart brevity architecture proved to have a whole new wider audience for Jamie Dimon's letter, which had been uh, famous on the street. And now his vision for the future uh, was uh, shared even more widely. So it shows how by using smart brevity, by communicating in a way that's going to resonate with the audience, that that will give you more power, that uh, you will be heard amid this uh, blast fog of words that comes at all of us. And I find that so interesting, Mike, in the sense that I think a bunch of people maybe listening to this would sit there and go, well, that's kind of the way that Axios has been able to crack the code in the media industry, but it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to my company. And one of the things you state in the book very clearly is that sharp communications equal a sharp strategy. And as I think about investors in Walker and Dunlop. And when I go meet with analysts and people like that, if I'm rambling and foggy, as, as you say, sharp communication equals a sharp strategy, foggy communication, you're basically lost. And if I'm foggy in my communication, even not just with investors, but with our strategy, a salesperson at Walker and Dunlop meeting with a client who isn't sharp and crisp and gets a little off of it. And so the lessons inside of smart brevity are literally applicable to any kind of point in the chain inside of corporate America. No, that's such a great point. And this can apply to something as simple as asking for a raise. Now, you're not going to be asking for a raise, but plenty of people uh, ask you for one. And 
we tend to dig ourselves deeper, right? Like if you're asking for a raise, my advice, and, and you've given more raises than I have, so I'll let you critique this, but I would say what I've done, what I'm going to do, and then I would just stop. Whereas the human tendency is to keep running our mouths, dig ourselves deeper, maybe even talk ourselves out of the raise. Like how accurate is that? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, people will sit there and they'll eat. First of all, they'll try and couch it in a lot of other things rather than coming out and explicitly stating it. As you say, brevity is confidence, length is fear. So if you think you've got to take 15 hours to get to the punchline, it's likely your audience isn't there anymore and they found 15 things to refute in your lead-in before you actually get to it, rather than just coming out and saying, this is what I think I'm worth. I think that's great. And you also see this in sales, and I'd be interested in your view on this, but what what I sometimes see is a salesperson who has a great product and maybe even have a great windup. And they've made the sale. I'm watching the body language of the prospect, the person they're talking to, and they're ready to sign. But then the person keeps talking and they raise so many questions that eventually the prospect says, oh, I'll think about it. Whereas if they just would have stopped, they would have walked out with an order. No doubt. Happens all the time. And it's actually painful to watch, as you know very well. And look, you've bought and sold companies. You've uh, hired people. You've bought services from people where you were ready to go 10 minutes into the meeting. And now all of a sudden you're 40 minutes into the meeting. You've thought about 15 other alternatives and other things you could be doing with your time. And all of a sudden that sale is now gone. And so I do think that that's one of the big issues. But I also, Mike, would push on this for a second because People could read your book and sort of say, you got to be really direct. You got to get right to the point and kind of hit them right between the eyes. And you're very straightforward in saying that, you know, your communication can't miss the flow. It can't miss the emotional piece of it. And that if it is all just black and white and just kind of bullet pointed out there, you've lost what Mike Allen has to add to it. And so being able to keep that cadence, if you will, even though you're using bullet points is super important. Am I correct? So well put, Willie. And one thing that you'll see in Smart Brevity is that we really emphasize that you are a human, not an algorithm. So funny story about this. This is where reading something out loud, once you've typed it, once it's prepared, and so this could be a plan for a Zoom meeting, this could be a PowerPoint deck, this could be a letter you're writing someone, this could be an email, this could be any kind of an update. Part of the power of reading it out loud is that you make sure that you're sounding like a human and not a robot. So uh, the other night I was reading a test of one of our newsletters and I called the editor and I said, I know a secret. And I said, you did not read the lead of that newsletter out loud because if you had, there would be paramedics there who are doing CPR (laughs) on you because you would be so out of breath. And that's where having a smart, sharp idea that you're excited and passionate about, that you believe in, and then communicating it in a human voice using everyday words that you and I would use over chips and salsa, like that's the power. But the power does does not come in number of uh, bolds or a number of bullets. Like those are elements, architecture that help you connect with your audience, connect with your reader, because like one of the things that we discovered as we dug into the brain science and eye tracking studies that have been done over the years, something that we discovered right away is that anytime you encounter a big glob of text, a big block of text, like, uh, Willie, you remember the print newspaper days when you would open the paper and it was just a sea of text. As reporters, we used to call it a notebook dump because that's what it was. We just took all our notes, typed them, and they put them in the paper. That's not thinking about the audience. And so uh, having ways to break up your text, and that can be with using uh, your key points in bold, like that middle school teacher did, having some bullets, having some numbers. Uh, We even like emojis. And the way that we use emojis is not OMG. It's to help you see that there is a logical architecture to what's in front of you. So like I like the the bullseye, the direct hit emoji, because it shows you a key point. 
I like a brain when, when we say explaining how something works. We'll use the brain emoji. I like a light bulb for a new idea to zoom in and really get detailed. I'll use a microscope to zoom out and I might use a telescope to give you the big picture. I might use a frame. And those are always just a signal to your reader. I've thought this through. This is worth your time. There's a very logical division here. I recognize that if all I do is throw words at you, you're going to tune out and you're going to miss it all. And so I'm breaking it up into digestible chunks that let you soak in the big ideas and come away. And whether it's a teacher, whether it's a minister, whether it's a business person, whether it's someone with a nonprofit or a college, come away and say, thank you for making me smarter today. So, Mike, the comment on emojis is so good. Before I get there, because I want to tell you what I did this weekend after reading that in your book. But before I get to that, I just want to put forth your comments on presentations and on PowerPoint presentations. There's not a person listening today who is not sat in a presentation, either from a colleague, a consultant, or a, someone pitching you to buy something, who has not sat there and wanted to pull out every piece of hair they had in their head because someone well, was me, reading pretty easy reading through a PowerPoint presentation of reading lines. And you're very clear in saying, get rid of the words, get to images and convey images and then talk to the images in your presentation. And so few people do that. Yeah. And yet it's one of the big takeaways that I have from the book. You're going to one of the graphs in the book, correct? Yeah. So smart brevity, your presentations. And there's a whole chapter that will help you with making a powerful presentation. And you're right about the text on the slides. So we've talked about how we know that if you see a bunch of text, you tune out. Well, that's just equally true if it's on a slide. And so if I'm talking and I have a slide behind me that's full of words, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to tune me out because you're probably going to try to process like all the words on the slides, or the slide is just completely wasted. If you just put a couple of words on the slides, four, five, six words on the slide. That will help the listener focus on what that big idea is. They are going to know what their takeaway is. So it's there almost as like a frame for you that they know that you have thought through your presentation, that what you're going to be presenting is worthy of their time. And they're going to be listening to your talk track rather than trying to sort through the type. And it's all about signaling to your audience that you're being respectful of their time. So you mentioned that we put on this book, uh, Smart Brevity, that it's 28,002 words. And as you know, and thank you for reading Axios AM and PM and Finish Line and our other great Axios newsletters, as you've noticed at the top of every newsletter, we give a number of minutes and a number of words. And that does two things. One, it disciplines the writer, that it shows me what I'm asking of my audience And almost always I can rein in like what I've originally planned. But the second thing, Willie, is simply to signal to you, I respect your time. I know that I'm asking you to take time out of a busy day. And I am disappointing myself by putting what the number of the time is there. Because the sweet spot to get into, and Smart Brevity will help you do that. The sweet spot to get into is I won't waste your time. I won't insult your intelligence. And if your audience, whether it's your boss, whether it's your team, whether it's internal stakeholders, whether it's external stakeholders, whether you are giving, as you said, a class reunion speech, if you are respectful of the audience, talk to them intelligently, talk to them like humans, have one big idea and make it clear, start there. Don't go through a lot of blind alleys. All of that, you're going to be a memorable, popular speaker writer. So on that and staying on the speaking piece, you mentioned in the book very clearly that there's a reason that the average TED talk is 16 minutes long. And I listened to Jim's TED talk and it's 15 minutes and two seconds. Okay. So there's, we have an event going on in a couple of weeks at WND and someone came to me and said, our keynote is going to be a fireside chat with X person. And I said, Well, an hour-long conversation on Fireside Chat probably loses a lot of people. There are probably four or five people that we could interview in 10 to 15-minute segments. Let's think about breaking it up. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to do it because I said to the person who's doing the moderating, this is really going to push you, and I don't know how we kind of 
blow people through from the seat on. And, and I also believe that panels of four people are a complete waste of time. I've never sat at a conference and listened to four people on stage do anything but just waste my time. But you talk about that. You also, you know, your morning brief, which is your podcast, is 12 minutes long. And then I ought to be able to read your morning brief in somewhere around two to three minutes. So, I mean, like time is so of the essence. So back to the emoji thing that I just want to talk about for a second. So I read your book and I'm sitting there and I'm texting with some people and I'm not verbose on text, but I write a bunch on text. I text a ton. And this weekend I said, I'm going to try and use emojis rather than words this weekend and texting with people. And the responses were unbelievable, Mike. Like instead of like writing three sentences to say something, I go emoji, a couple words in emoji. And immediately the person comes back with this like big, like, you know, fireworks going off and all this stuff. I was like, this stuff works. They're like happy to, that I can express it. But the piece to it that I thought was so interesting was I had to really stop to think about what I wanted to say with a picture. And that's exactly to what you're saying that, that it's hard. Like if I just wanted to write was on my mind, I just text away, Hey, I'll see you at the drugstore then. And it's going to be really fun. But instead, if I could sit there and say, you know, drugstore equals, you know, I don't know, Coke and a big smile into this, they get exactly what I'm trying to convey in a couple images. And it's wildly more impactful. So true. And you mentioned the firecracker. I like the rocket is good. What looks like a cannonball could be a bomb. So you want to be careful about that. What in your little experiment, did you come up with a favorite emoji that you found to be very expressive, efficient, useful? muscular? You know, it's funny. The one that I use more than I have in the past is the thankful one with two things together saying, thank you for that. And I think it's probably nice because as much as I say, thanks a lot, I don't think these people are expecting me to say thanks for like meeting at the grocery store or whatever the case might be. Such a good point. And to go back to your uh, old, let's do email and then speeches, email, funny story about email. And how is this for the ultimate and smart brevity? The first president that I covered was president George W. Bush. And his chief of staff uh, was Andy Card. And he was called Secretary Card because he'd been Secretary of Transportation. And all through the time that Secretary Card was the chief of staff, and one day we'll be able to see this in the National Archives, every email that he got, one of the most busiest email inboxes in the world, he only had three responses. If If anybody on his staff emailed Andy Card, they got one of three responses. Yes. No or see me. That's smart brevity and that is muscular. So talk for a moment about that. That was in the White House. Now take it to Mike Morell at British Petroleum, because I think that BP adopted not only smart brevity, they're avid users of Axios, but they're also avid users of Axios HQ, which I want to talk about in two seconds. But talk for a moment about the Bob Gates at the DOD, Mike Morell at BP, bottom line up front, ITK, all that for a moment, because I think the way that BP incorporated all that in and some of the smart brevity things make people understand you really can take this and work it into your daily communication strategy. So BP and Jeff Morell were real pioneers of this and quickly became evangelists of it. So what happened with BP was that a lot of their executives uh, said to us, we love the Axios style. Like we love the Axios newsletter. And Jeff Morell, who was somebody who had been the, the Pentagon press secretary and a former ABC News White House reporter, realized that the Axios format was very popular and powerful inside. And he said, what if I try it? So we worked with BP and that was the birth of Axios HQ software that we have that helps you communicate in smart brevity. But originally it was just uh, Jeff and his team with uh, email. And what they discovered was that you put one piece of content, a morning update, anything from HR, anything that used to be long and long-winded, that if you put it in smart brevity, that suddenly there is a huge spike in the open rate. There's a huge spike in the take-up. The people know what's being read instead of skipping over it. And so they added this team by team. They started with an update uh, just for the CEO's uh, leadership team and grew it, grew it, grew it until it was all across the company. And they found that so many more people were reading their internal communications. So many people knew what the company wanted them to know that it just became a very 
powerful tool. And the heads of other divisions, other functions, as they say at, at BP, were all coming to Jeff, all looking at him. He came to be seen as this great seer and this pioneer because this form of communication was so popular. And I just have to, uh, you mentioned that one of his former bosses, uh, Secretary Robert Gates, who helped influence Jeff's style, the military has a great expression. And it really works, but very few people do it. So the military teaches, as you said, bluff, bottom line up front, B-L-U-F. It's great in theory. It's rarely practiced, but bottom line up front works for all of us because it's give them the punchline, give them the one thing that you want to remember, because the one thing that we know is that they'll only remember one thing, put it up top. And you'll have a much better chance of succeeding with your communication. So beyond the, I love the bluff tip. I know you also gamify some of your editing. Talk for a moment about how you gamify your editing. I thought this was fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Willie. And this is uh, Axios HQ, which is the software that we have for organizations, anybody who wants to communicate one to many. And you open up Axios HQ and it gives you the template like I have when I start my newsletter in the morning. And it helps you communicate in muscular, memorable, smart brevity. So what my Axios HQ colleagues did was they took the the data scientists there, took the whole body of Axios content, the whole library of Axios content from six years, and they used that to develop algorithms that can help any of viewers of this webcast communicate in smart brevity. So it, you open it up and it helps you write a strong subject line. It helps you write a sharp tease. It helps you make sure that your lead is something that a human can read out loud rather than choking on. Helps you with the why it matters. You paste some text in there and it'll maybe say, let's break this up as by the numbers. Or we could say this in an easier way. Or here's an SAT word that you could say in a clearer way. And a big one is the subject line. Uh, we'd like a subject line to be recommend three words to, to five words. And the reason for that, Willie, is that that's the real estate that you have in someone's iPhone inbox, that that is your target audience, right? You want them to see and to be arrested by what you have to say in your email. And after three to five words, it's all wasted. And those should also be sharp, powerful, strong words. So one of the secrets in smart brevity is that the shortest words in the English language tend to be the strongest, rock, punch, right? All very strong, sharp words. So I, when I'm writing a headline or the subject line of an email, if a word is three syllables, I'll see if I can make it two syllables. If it's two syllables, I'll see if I can make it one syllable because I know that that is going to be stronger. And so that strong subject line, because like one of the magics, one of the, the discoveries we've made is that if you don't get the subject line right, all the other words are a waste, right? Because I'll never see them. So our tendency is to make the subject line an afterthought, whereas we say, give it real thought. Axios HQ helps you do that. And for anyone who wants to communicate, needs to align uh, their teams, Axios HQ can help. And Willie, like you've experienced this yourself, that since the pandemic, we all have to communicate in totally different ways. Any organization that's communicating the same way that it did before COVID is losing the battle. Because if you have one person working remotely, even part of the time, you have a huge gap in making sure that everybody's aligned, everybody's connected. And so practice, we practice what we preach at Axios. Every Sunday night, Jim Vandehei, our CEO, sends a newsletter, five big things to all 550 people in our company. And what does it do? It helps everybody know what our big goal, our mission is, helps everybody know what each of our teams is up to, keeps everybody aligned. Roy Schwartz, a co-author of Smart Brevity and the president of Axios, uh, now the CEO of, of Axios HQ, is does this with all of his direct reports. They all send him an update in Axios HQ using our format. And what that does, Willie, the magic of that is, is that when people send you a regular update on a weekly cadence, then when you have a one-on-one -on -one with them, when you have time with them, you're caught up. 
And you can be talking about the future. You can talk about building, growing, instead of what's in the rear view mirror. Because something we've learned at Axios, and this is something that Jim Van High lives and I've learned from him, is that you can almost detect someone's success by how much time they spend thinking about the future than as opposed to thinking about the past. And so having regular internal communication, which Axios HQ helps you do, helps you make sure that the time that you're spending, your human time, is about the future. So a couple sort of in-practice things to that, and then I want to go to HQ for a second. So I went to D.C. last week, had a ton of meetings, met with clients, met with partners, met with congressmen, senators, blah, blah, blah. So I got done with Washington, and I wrote, before reading your book, I wrote a lengthy email to everyone inside of Walker and Dulop saying, my trip to D.C. And uh, I'm a pretty bullet form person, and I try and stay really tight. Uh, Chris Ogden, uh, now the late Chris Ogden, who died a couple of weeks ago, tragically in Hawaii in an accident, but the former Time Magazine writer, uh, helped me tremendously as a when I was applying to business schools, Mike, I showed him my business school essays and Chris pulled out a red Sharpie and just went <laughs> and just just terrorized, terrorized my essay that I thought was such a great piece of work. And, and I learned from Chris how to be how to be concise, if you will. So it was pretty concise, but I sent it out and then I read your book. So I said, I want to find out how many people actually read it. So we did a quick survey to Walker and Dunlop employees on Friday saying of Willie's email that came out on Thursday. Did you never open it? Did you open it and skim it? Did you read half of it or did you read the whole thing? And so, so far out of sending that out to 1500 employees, we've gotten 720 responses. And of the 720, 520 presumably read the whole thing, which I will take great credit that, you know, a vast majority of them actually say they read the whole thing. I'm not sure whether I actually truly believe it, but the point is that then I sat there after reading your book And as you saw, because I sent it to you, I said, you know, I'm going to start Monday morning with a Walker week, and I'm going to say the four major things that we need to be focused on this week of things that came from last week. I sent it to you. And as you can tell, it's choppy, it's bullet pointed, and it's right out there. And so I just, I would put forth your book is so, it's a user's manual to communication. And it's just got so many good things that are so practical for all of our communications, whether it's what we're doing back and forth of talking to each other, whether it's a PowerPoint presentation, a presentation at a conference, or the daily communication in internal or external written words. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I would just flip that slightly or tweak that slightly, Willie. And I would say that it's a user's manual to being heard. And that's what you got with those four points in Walker's Week, that people saw what you wanted them to remember. They're not going to remember this. Nobody is. But by boiling it down, and you gave those four points probably more thought than you gave your whole My Week in Washington. And now you're seeing the power of that and the results you're going to get from that. People are going to be aligned. People are going to be inspired. So I want to close off on on Axios for a second, and then I want to move to your take on the political world we live in, because, well, I've got you on this. It's just I, I can't pass that opportunity up, Mike. Before I move to that, as a reference point, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post a couple of years ago for $250 million. Cox Communications bought Axios for over 2x that price very recently. And so I would first say it is incredible of old media into new media and what you and your partners have done as it relates to creating a new way to communicate with your audience and really flipping media and digital media on its head. And I think that that's just an incredible hats off to the three of you for what you have created. My question to you, Mike, is this, how much of the of the sale price, how much of the purchase price is for Axios as it relates to content versus Axios HQ as it relates to technology? So Cox Enterprises, which is a fantastic partner, which have journalism in their bones and blood. So Cox Enterprises goes back to their founder, was in Dayton, Ohio, at the end of the 1800s, bought what was then the evening news, became the Dayton Daily News. They went on to build this incredible media footprint uh, across uh, the country. When I was coming up in in newspapers, we took Cox News Service right into our, our terminals. Cox Enterprises now moved into other areas, cable, automotive, and moved away from legacy media. But now we're excited to be partnering with them on the media of the future. And they looked at us and they said, oh, like this is a company that's built for the future. They especially like Axios Local, 
Uh, we now have Axios reporters on the ground in 24 cities across the country, soon to be 30 cities, all doing a morning newsletter for those cities, whether it's Des Moines or San Francisco or Tampa or Seattle, in smart brevity, covering their news in a crisp, efficient, trustworthy way. So Axios and Cox Enterprises are very aligned in our long-term thinking, in the importance of journalism. And so they're investing more in the future of Axios. They're the um, dream partner. And they said, we like what you're doing. We want you to do more of it, do it faster. And we said, we're it. One of the things about what you said at the top, that the value that's been created is very much, I'm grateful for my partners, uh, Jim Bandai and Roy Schwartz, but the value that's been created is the hundreds of axioms, as we call our colleagues, over those six years who helped refine smart brevity. We make the point in here that smart brevity started as an idea and it's been refined and is now available to you between hardcovers because of the hard work of our colleagues. So we've had a great team of innovators, pioneers. When we started, like deciding to go to work for Axios, there were a lot easier places to go. You're entrepreneurial and you are a pioneer yourself. And you know that a lot of times people could make an easier decision. They could choose a lot of easier places to work. People did something hard. They came to Axios. We're grateful for it. And now we can all benefit from it in the book Smart Ready. So two quick things. One, all Axios employees own stock. So in Mike and his partner selling the firm, all of the Axio, what'd you call them? Axioms? Axios. Yes. They all benefited from that. The second thing is that all of the Profits from Smart Brevity go to a foundation that Axios has set up to try and recruit and maintain more diverse writers into the media world, into the writing world, into the journalism profession, which is um, absolutely fantastic. Well, I really appreciate your mentioning that because our proceeds go to the Axios Fellowship Program, which, as you said, brings uh, journalists from underrepresented backgrounds early in their career, lets us like pay them uh, to become to join our newsroom. And one of the key points in Axios, in uh, Smart Brevity, the book, which I think will really resonate with your viewers of this webcast, is we have a whole section in there on inclusive communications. And we say there that if you're not communicating inclusively, and that can take in all the types of diversity that make a company stronger, you're not communicating effectively. And I have a tiny teaser for you, a fascinating chapter in this book, which was written by Roy Schwartz, one of the three founders of Axios and one of the three authors of Smart Brevity, he writes about his dyslexia and how when he was coming up at school, after he got his MBA, when he became a consultant, when he was at Gallup, that his dyslexia forced him to communicate in efficient way, and he had to boil things down. And that's part of what became the magic of Smart Brevity that now is replicable in our tips and tricks for your listeners, viewers, we even have a tear-out cheat sheet uh, to help your you and your team communicate with more power. So finally, on a quick take on politics, I could talk to you for another hour about this one, but I want to, two things. One, when you were on Squawk last week, one of the things I thought was so fascinating was you practicing what you preach. And that was, you were asked at, to open it, what President Biden was going to go to the UN and talk about. And rather than sitting there and pontificating on all the things that you know that he could go talk about, what you said was, what I would watch for is this. And when I went back and re-listened to it, Mike, I was fascinated how you saying that tells people, where are you going? What to look for? Not here, I'm going to relay to you all the things I know because I talked to everyone in the White House about what he's going to talk about. And I'll tell you the five bullet points. You were like, what I would watch for is this. And I thought it was so capturing. And it's exactly how you write Axios AM is you're sort of like, these are the things you need to know about today. When you were talking verbally, you went to, this is what I would watch for. And it immediately captured everyone's attention. So that was point one. You go ahead, because I see you want to say something on that. No, I was just going to say real quick, you're amazing. Thank you for picking up on that. And that's one of the things that you'll learn in Smart Brevity is we talk about the importance of the T's. Grab me, two of the first words of the book, because we want to practice what we preach. Grab me. And so- Things I like to say are, what our reporting shows is, I've got a scoop for you. Here's something that's new. Here's something that'll be making news tomorrow. And all those are things that your listeners, viewers can apply 
uh, no matter what kind of update they're doing, grab me. Here's I've got the goods. This is going to be worthy of your time. Okay. So then what you said about Trump, which I thought was fascinating, was the more his legal and financial woes increase, the quicker he is to declare a candidacy. Yes. What I would watch for is Donald Trump to declare for the presidency shortly after midterms and Willie, it's Donald Trump. So who knows? Uh, he could change his mind. Well, we can tell you what our reporting shows is that people around him expect him to announce for the presidency shortly after the midterms, in part as these investigations uh, heat up, as you said, because he sees it as protection that he can then say that the investigations are political. But here's something new. Here's a scoop uh, for you, Willie, is that one of the reasons that I would watch for him to do it fairly soon after the midterms is he doesn't want other people to get a head start. He knows that after Ron DeSantis, it looks like he can be easily reelected governor of Florida, that after he's reelected, he could announce there's other Republicans out there who are going to want to go. One of the reasons that Donald Trump, I think, will do it sooner rather than later, or at least the people around him expect him to do it sooner rather than later, is so that no one else gets a head of steam, as my grandma would say, uh, that he will be uh, out front in that race. And then on the midterms, you've got, it was going to be a red wave. It's now going to be a red bleed, if you're thinking that, or, or a red pickup. You've got to, whatever, the, yeah. however you want to play that, but they'll pick up 20 seats in the House and that the Democrats are looking right now from the numbers that you said last week, right now, I think it's 62, 39, which um, I don't know where the other one well, went. Yeah, anyway. here's, here's an easy way to think about it, Willie, is the two things. Like first, I used to say there were none. Now I found one, but very few Democrats will argue that they will hold the House. Republicans only need to flip five seats, and they could win as many as you mentioned, the range is sort of 15 uh, to 25 of what they could win. So that looks like, uh, barring some surprise at this moment, it looks like uh, we're going to have a speaker, Kevin McCarthy of California. Uh, What I'd said before was that there was a time that it looked like a red tsunami. The people were talking about them winning 40 seats. Now it looks more like the red wave again and better than the red ripple that we had a few weeks ago. And then on the Senate side, people now will tell you that it's a toss up. The two sides have gone uh, back and forth, but you can take it seat by seat, race by race, state by state, and very easily make the case for either one. But what that does, the bottom line, Willie, is that with the likelihood that you're going to have a Republican House, the likelihood is you're going to have a divided government, you're going to have a Democratic president, at least one chamber of Congress Republican. So that's going to mean political warfare and not a lot of accomplishment in the next couple of years. And your September 2006 Barack Obama pick, (laughs) if that makes sense. So your dark horse for 2024 that no one's thinking about right now, September 2006, nobody would have put money on Barack Obama as Senator freshman Senator Barack Obama, who's the person who might come in there and all of a sudden change the outlook on 2024? I'm wiser than I was in 2006. And so I'm less likely to make a pick like that. But here's one takeaway for you, that if for whatever reason, the nominee is not President Biden, I would look outside Washington, that there's a lot of Democratic governors, look at Governor Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Governor Newsom in my home state of California, Democratic Governor Governor Polis in my home state and add in Pennsylvania, add in North Carolina. So the bottom line of that between those lines is that it's going to be a free-for-all, that no one's going to defer, that it's going to be that if for whatever reason it's not President Biden, it'll be a real fight. On the Republican side, at the moment, President Trump holds a lot of cards with the Republican base. The party is more Trumpy than it was the, the day he lost because of all the work that he's done in primaries to get his nominees in. And here's something to watch is that at least at first, other Republicans are not going to want to cross him, are not going to want to repudiate Trumpian ideas because they're not going to want to be attacked by him. And as a result, the Republican Party is going to sound very Trumpy for at least a while. Mike Allen. What a total joy. The book, Smart Brevy, is fantastic. You are incredible. Keep up doing all that you're doing. Um, I look forward to seeing you next time I'm in D.C., and I'm just super appreciative of you spending an hour with me. 
Well, Willie Walker, thank you for that. And if you're a listeners, viewers of this webcast, go on smartbrevity.com. They'll see other data, other tips there. Also, it's very easy to get Smart Brevity from independent booksellers, the big guys. There's lots of choices. And Willie, thank you for inspiring my co-authors, Roy Schwartz, Jim Vanahai, and me. Your attention to fitness, family, and your success in business are all eye-opening, all worthy of emulation. So thank you for this conversation. Thanks, Mike. Everyone, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you again next week. My guest next week is Molly Bloom of Molly's Game, who ran the biggest private poker game in America until the Fed shut her down. There's a book that she wrote, as well as a movie done by uh, Aaron Sorkin on Molly's Game. And uh, I can't wait to have Molly on the webcast next week. So, Mike, thanks again, everyone. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Willie. SmartRevity.com.